Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening yet again to the podcast. Okay, question. Who are your heroes? Who are the celebrities or musicians or uh, great writers, great thinkers, teachers, religious leaders, what have you? Who are the people that you look up to, maybe idolize? And what happens if they disappoint you? What happens if, for whatever reason, they get knocked hard off the pedestal? Well, that is the topic of today's talk by Kevin Bogle. Uh, Kevin Bowell, as you know, is a regular contributor to the podcast. This was recorded a couple weeks ago at our weekly Dharma gathering. It's about fallen idols. Kevin Bogle is teaching our introductory meditation course called Meditation in Everyday Life, beginning Thursday evening, June 7th. It's four Thursdays, beginning June 7th. You learn everything you need to set up your own home practice including answers to common questions, dealing with posture, dealing with what to do when you get distracted, what to do when emotions come up, sometimes powerful emotions. A good, solid overview to get you going with your home meditation practice. Uh, For more information and to register, click the link on the homepage, ny.shambhala.org. Again, the course is Meditation in Everyday Life. Okay? Talking about our fallen idols... Here's Kevin Bogle. So, so it could range, an idol can range anything from like, you know, maybe you started yoga a few years ago and it changed your life and you became healthier in body, mind, and spirit and decided to start eating better and so you went vegan and you then pull out your phone one Monday afternoon and you're scrolling through Instagram and what do you see but your yoga teacher at a barbecue and they're eating a hot dog. And, and it's not even like a vegetarian hot dog. It's like a kosher beef frank. And that feeling, like I can feel it even just saying that. There's like this feeling of like, oh, really? It's like disappointment and pain. Like that can't be true, right? Like it's gotta be a fake veggie dog, Morning Star Farms or something. Like it can't be real. Disbelief. You know, there's this whole kind of like slew of things that we might feel. And then, and then we have to work this new information in to our understanding of this person. And this could happen from like our yoga teacher to entertainers, celebrities, authors, intellectuals, politicians, um, anyone that we kind of look up to. And I think in our current age, Uh, there's no shortage of people that we could idolize for one reason or another that we could look up to and really feel like they represent part of the best of who we are. So do people have this experience? Can people kind of connect to this? Yeah. So I want to be clear that um, a lot of the idols, a lot of the people that I have looked up to who have fallen from their pedestal in my eyes, lately has been around the hashtag MeToo movement and, um, and are rightfully being exposed for behaviors that maybe they wouldn't have been talked about prior to this. 
Uh, and there's a whole conversation about transformative justice and restorative justice and what do we do with these people um, after they're taken out of their positions of power. And this conversation tonight isn't really about that. Uh, that's a good conversation to have. I am either not skilled enough to have that conversation at this point, and I'm waiting for another teacher to do that, or it's going to be like another month or two um, before I feel ready. So what I wanted to talk about tonight is, is in Buddhism, we're, we're taking radical responsibility for our own minds and our own reactions to things and our own experience internally. So I thought we could look at what's happening. Why does it hurt so bad when we see someone we don't even know necessarily act in a way that's out of sync for how we think they should be. Or the flip side of that, when it's someone that we think is on the other team for us, whatever our team is, maybe we're um, a Democrat and the other team is Republicans, when one of them acts out and gets called out, we celebrate. Or we're like, yeah, I always knew that they were monsters, right? <laughs> What's that about? So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about tonight, is like unpacking our side of the story when this situation unfolds. And I think this is actually really useful because uh, it allows us to then see ourselves more clearly and see where we're coming from and what's going on within us. And then when it's time for us to act, we're a little bit more clear about where we're coming from. We're not just kind of being, we're not just in a reactive state. We're kind of in a ability to act from a place of oh yeah, I, I see my reaction, I know what it's about, and I'm gonna act um, not from that necessarily. It gives us some choice and flexibility. So I wanted to break down the anatomy of, of my reaction when I pull up Instagram and I'm disappointed. <laughs> and um, you know, how it goes is, is first, there's this moment of discomfort or pain, which I kind of alluded to, where I'm like, oh no, like, oh, and I you know, put the phone down, or just like walk away for a second. I'm like, oh, that, there's actually like some physical discomfort as I'm wrestling with this new information. And then if it's, if it's someone I like, there's a feeling of, that can't be true. Like, where's the Morningstar, is Morningstar Farm still the preferred meat alternative? Is there a new one now? It's been a while. Um, where's the Morningstar Farms? Where's the evidence that this isn't true? Um, and then I grudgingly accept, I don't know, actually this person is human or just like me, you know, this person is, is just like me or maybe even worse than me. Maybe they're doing things I would never do, uh, which is even more painful. Or if someone's on the other team, then it's like, woohoo, got him. I knew, I, I always knew there was something off about that group of people, whatever they are. So I think that, um, and then the third level of reaction is, is a move to like attack or punish or condemn to somehow otherize that person and say, um, to attack them. And, and punishment is sometimes is necessary in the world. If someone's committing crimes, if someone's an abuser, you know, punishment is an important thing to do, but um, I might not be the one to be acting out that punishment. So it might not be my responsibility to uh, sit around and talk with my friends and like really um, try to cancel them from. And the, and the other effect of canceling someone is that 
all the good stuff that they've done, I like pretend, I have to pretend that it never happened, right? Like I have to pretend I never laughed at those jokes or like I can't finish that series I was watching or those books are just go into the bonfire. So is there anything, am I missing anything as far as the reaction goes? There's like the discomfort, the kind of a little bit of disbelief and then begrudging acceptance and then, yeah. Grief and loss, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Shame. For the self or for the other person? I think both, but maybe shame for having been fooled. Mm-hmm. Shame for having been fooled. Yeah. Which is really interesting. I, I think that we, um, we feel grief and loss and we feel shame because in some way we've outsourced our judgment, our personal assessment of who this person is to politicos or to critics or to people that know them, but we don't. And so there is this like, oh yeah, I was fooled and I, I maybe shouldn't outsource my discretion to other people. But yet often these people are strangers and so how do we know better? I think that, um, is there anything else that I was missing? Grief, shame, yeah. Pain at betrayal. The pain of betrayal, that's right. How could they do this? Right. Yeah, at the back of the room. I think there's the fear, too. I was going to say, I think there's fear, too. You know, the world is not how I expected or envisioned it to be. And that's scary. That sort of makes you feel insecure and vulnerable. Yeah. All of a sudden, we're less certain about who and what we're engaging with. That's right. Uh, One of the things uh, I think... I didn't at first, but now I'm experiencing, since there's so many repeat, and then we see the pattern, is the dread of the public piling on and the righteousness, mm-hmm. as if like we all have this, like it's kind of terrifying, this yeah. capacity to just turn on someone in, yeah. a, in a mob-like way. Yeah, right. So it's not just me that goes to that attacking phase, it's tens of thousands of people going right there and, and mobbing on, yeah. And then what if that turns on me? What if I say the wrong thing online and then it gets pointed at me, which I've experienced in other contexts? It's horrible. Hi, um, shocked. Shock. Shocked, almost um, to a point of being on a nonverbal level, like stunned. Yeah. Shocked. Yeah. And does the shock come like right at that initial moment of? It can, yes. Yeah. You're just, it pushes you almost to a non-conceptual place. You're just a non-verbal place sometimes. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Thank you. Yeah, we're recording I, this, so. Okay, I was just saying we're talking about idols that are removed from us, and but what if it's an idol that's closer to us, and then there's the self-reflection of whether you took part or caused some of the bad behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can take a lot of it on yourself as well. Yeah, that's right. If there was any enabling or turning, a, turning an eye away from. And then how to integrate with that person. Do you, I mean, do you just pretend they don't exist if you know the person? Or do you at some point resume communication? And what's that like? Yeah. 
I always have a, this feeling of, of hypocrisy, of my own self-hypocrisy, because if it's somebody that I know, somebody that I like, yeah. uh, I'm always <laughs> more than ready to try and come up with some explanation to, to, to understand their behavior or to um, forgive them. Yes. And again, yeah. as you mentioned, if it's a Republican, then of course they're trash and garbage and I didn't expect anything better, so. That's right. But, but there's always this, this, and there's been so many, well, using that, there's been so many Democrats lately, that you, you, you go, it's, it's, it's hard. It, yeah. it, you, you, I, I personally feel hypocritical, like if my hypocrisy comes up, yeah. that I'm prepared to defend what I like, defend what I believe in, and trash what I mm. throw on the opposite side of the fence, which mm -hmm. is not a nice feeling to have. Right, it's not. The good news is you're not alone in that. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and so I'll go into what that's all about. I think that's really important. I think I heard a lot of important things. Some of them I'll, I'll be able to address in the talk and some will just have to remain as open questions for now is how we relate to that. Um, I wish I could like push pause and write a little bit more right now and then come back, but unfortunately we'll move onward. So I think that when, when we're talking about people that are removed from us, when we're talking about authors, comedians, writers, intellectuals, politicians, the list goes on and on, public figures. Um, I, I haven't read this anywhere, but I have a belief that we, I like the people I like based on them representing a value that I hold. So the comedians I listen to are the ones unafraid to tell truth to power the ones that are, are able to speak the hard truths and then kind of couch it in a smile and a laugh. The, the authors I like are the ones that are able to kind of dig into the truth about capitalism and how it affects people in our current age. The politicians I like are the ones that like aren't just bending over um, and opening the gate for big moneyed interests in the country. You know, they're the ones that stick up and are gatekeepers and are actually trying to protect um, the environment, for example. And so the, the idols that I like and idolize are actually, it's something I like about myself. There's something that I'm projecting onto someone else that's a representative of myself. And I think that's, that's part of why we have such strong reactions, is my theory, that, that these people, it's not just about them, that it's about part of us that we're putting onto them. It's our values, it's our best wisdom, our best jokes, our best whatever the case may be and then we project it onto this other person. And so our reaction isn't so much about them necessarily as it is about a, a sense of betrayal and loss of part of who we are. And we kind of have to question like, am I actually losing this part of myself? Um, and I think I heard that in some of the responses, this kind of sense of betrayal, of hypocrisy, of, um, you know, yeah, judgment. So there's a, there's a teaching that comes out of first century um, South India, a Buddhist teacher named Nagarjuna, who was in the three Yana schools. He was a Mahayana Buddhist. He founded the Madhyamaka school and was very prolific as a teacher. But he has a very simple teaching that I think applies to this called the eight worldly winds, like the gusting wind outside, uh, also known as the eight worldly dharmas. And he basically described four pairs of hope and fear, 
four pairs of hopes, things we hope for and are afraid of, that keep us spinning and blowing around in samsara, in the cycle of discontentment that is kind of the core teaching of the Buddha. So the eight worldly winds, uh, the four hopes are, are for happiness, for fame, for praise, and for gain. And then the corresponding fear to happiness is suffering, to praise is blame, to, uh, to fame is insignificance, and to gain is loss. So it's, it's happiness and suffering, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and insignificance. And he says that each of us are kind of ruled by this, these uh, four pairs at a very subtle level. And when we get one, we feel good, but then we're always afraid of the other coming up. And so, you know, happiness, I think, is a very clear example that we are often struggling to be happy and like really living our lives trying to find some kind of happiness for ourselves. Um, and then whenever maybe we inadvertently stumble on something that brings happiness, then we're afraid that it's going to go away. Almost instantly, there's like this trying to hold on to it, package it, extend our vacation so that it could stay. And, and then conversely, when we're in an unhappy place, when we're suffering, uh, no amount of wishful thinking will cause us to kind of get back to that point again. And I think this um, kind of plays into like that, that shock moment that you were talking about at the back of the room. Like, that's a, oh God, I wish this weren't the case. Like, this is deeply unsatisfying right now. This is deep dissuffering, deep dissatisfaction. We can't get back to that place that we were three minutes prior. Um, I think that fame and infamy, you know, on a personal level, Nagarjuna says that we're always looking for fame to kind of um, be obsessed with it. And we're afraid of our own insignificance. And that may play out in different ways in the Instagram era for all of us. Um, I might not say that I want to be Instagram famous, but I think in other ways I do look for, for what he would call fame, recognition. Um, and I think that, that very clearly maps onto this idea of idols, that we are putting our best ideas about our best selves onto these people, and then when they're knocked off the pedestal, what does that say about us and our fear of insignificance? I think praise and blame also fits and maps really neatly onto, onto this topic, that we want to be praised for all of our qualities and are always kind of like seeking out uh, assurances for like how talented we are and how strong we are and smart and wise and whatever our personal flavor of wanting praise is. And, and our, whenever we make a mistake, try to push away any blame uh, in whatever way we can. It's actually really hard to, to just say like, yeah, I did that and I made a mistake. Um, that's something we have to learn how to do. It's a skill we have to develop. And I think this um, yeah, maps really cleanly we want our, the people we like to be praised and not blamed. And when they're blamed, we feel really bad. We feel bad for them, we feel bad for the people that they've harmed. The whole situation just reeks of, of pain for us. Or if it's someone that we don't like on the other team, we cheer when they're blamed. You know, so there's this weird back and forth. And then gain and loss is the fourth pair. And when we're talking about gain and loss, I think that this could represent any number of things. 
So if it's a politician who's fallen off their platform, we might think of all of the things that we've actually lost from their future career, their ability to do good in the world. Um, and we feel like this actual, um, I feel this actual sense of like, what could have been? What could have been? What, what have we lost in this scenario? So I think these, these four pairs are useful to kind of see like, what are we mapping onto in this moment of reaction? Like what is, what is our fear of right now? Is it loss? Is it the blame? Uh, is it just the dissatisfaction that the world isn't the way I thought it was? And then I think that there's um, some contemporary psychology that can actually add to this and help us get to a deeper truth underneath it. Uh, so who here is, is maybe familiar with the fundamental attribution error? I see a single hand. Okay. No, that's okay. Thanks. Okay. Um, so this is something that I think was discovered in the late 60s, the fundamental attribution error. And it's, it's basically what you just described to a T, that humans in general, it's hard to make sweeping generalizations, but humans in general make this fundamental mistake about um, where to attribute the, the cause of someone's behavior. What's the cause of it? So when we do something good, it's because we're, we're good people. And, and of course we do good things. Like we're generous and we're kind and it's because we're just basically, not, we're fundamentally good people. Yeah. And when the people on the other side the people I don't like so much, when they do bad things, it's because they're bad, fundamentally. It's because they're uh, evil at their core. When we do bad things, though, or anyone on our, in our group, uh, it's circumstantial. We look for the reason. Why did I do this thing? Well, there has to be a reason for it. There's some explanation. Um, and similarly, when people on the other team do good things. They're just manipulating the situation. They're just trying to take advantage, right? So you'll see how this works. We, we attribute goodness and badness to like uh, moral decisions, to like something about us or about them. That at our core we're good or at their core they're bad. And, and that really plays into our understanding of, of when uh, our idols fall. Like how do we respond to it? And I think the truth that the eight worldly winds point to, and the truth that the fundamental attribution error points to, and that Shambhala Dharma also points to, is fundamentally, we're not good or bad. Like fundamentally, at our core, we're neither good nor bad. We're, we're basically good. And that's the, the message of Shambhala Buddhism, is that uh, if you're able to sit and practice meditation for not even that long, you'll start to see that like you're not actually all that bad or all that good. You're basically good. Uh, it has other words, primordial pur purity, um, Buddha nature. Um, but basically it means that when you sit and take an unbiased look at who you are, you'll see that um, underneath all of that, underneath the confusion and the neuroses and the cultural conditioning, um, is something that's, there's no fundamental complaint. It's something that you don't have to change and you don't have to fix at all. And it's as true for everyone in this room as it is for the people on Wall Street, as it is for the people in the White House, 
as it is for, for everyone on the planet. And, and that's kind of the truth of, of what we're talking about. There's actually um, no one that's beyond either causing harm, and there's no one that's beyond recovering from causing harm. There's work to be done. There's work to be done. But, but I think, you know, it's, it's really wonderful to kind of acknowledge that. I think really important. And I'm going to kind of make a leap for the last part of this talk. So just stay with me here. I think that the last thing I want to talk about tonight is <clears throat> is I want, to, I want to talk about a misconception that I think a lot of people that have fallen from their pedestal have. And I think it's a misconception that maybe all of us have. And it's the idea that um, that we can just kind of like show up and meditate and practice and read good books and, and support good causes, um, but not actually look at certain parts of who we are. That there, there are some parts that we can just ignore and not work with. And, you know, I think it's really clear that some of the people who come to mind when I think of fallen idols have done that. That they, they did a lot of good work, um, but there were parts that they just ignored. There were parts that they thought, oh, I don't have to deal with that. Who, who was here last week for Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams's wonderful Dharma talk? A few people. So she talked a little bit about this, how if we're not actively working with who we are, which has a lot to do with the culture that we've been brought up and raised and acclimated to, uh, then we're going to be perpetrating harm without knowing it. And we won't be able to catch it when it happens. So if we think that there's the option to have some private part of who we are that we don't have to work with, that we can be in public and be one thing, and then go home and do our other thing, and it won't leak out or it won't affect the world, it's both good news and bad news, right? Because it means uh, we don't get off the hook. We actually have to be accountable, radically accountable for the content of our own minds. Uh, but it also means that when we do that, when we do this work together in this community and in the other communities we work in, it ripples out. It doesn't stay behind the doors. So when we work to develop good qualities, it affects the rest of the world, slowly but surely. So, so what I call this last part of the talk is that there's no such thing as privacy. I mean, that doesn't mean that Facebook and Google just get all of our data and we don't have to like, you know, that's not what it is at all, but that rather we, we can't live under the illusion that part of us gets to like hide out. And that can be a little painful. You know, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams last week says, if you, hadn't, if you haven't laid on the floor crying because you don't know who you are and you don't know where these thoughts and ideas came from, then you haven't begun the work. Because it's a painful process to unlearn 
the cultural conditioning of growing up. Uh, I grew up in America. And it's really painful to kind of like pick apart like what is, what is being a man and what's been put into me and what I've been taught and what's actually true. And so I think um, I would just really like to encourage uh, male-bodied people especially to kind of do this work around what it is to be a man in our culture and uh, white-bodied people especially to do the work around what it is to be white in our culture because it really does matter. It really does um, have an effect on the rest of the world. So that's my weird little leap for the last part of the talk. And um, hopefully it was useful in some way. Um, I'd be happy to have questions and maybe an answer or two, um, or just discussion among the room as well. Is it, is it wise to attempt to not idolize people? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot we could say about celebrity culture. Um, and I didn't try to offer a critique of that at all, because it just would have gone in a completely different direction. I mean, the part of me that was like a punk rocker in my 20s would be like, yeah, no gods, no masters. But I don't know if that's true. I think, I think part of what I believe is actually that we are seeing our best selves reflected back in us, at us, in these people. I think the Buddhist answer to that is that we can't look for any one person to save us. And so if our idolatry is like, uh, Mueller's gonna save us all and bring down the whole thing and gonna do the thing, like, and we don't have to do anything because of that, like, no, that's, yeah, that's the wrong kind of idolatry. But if our, our idols are like people that we look up to because they do represent the best of us and we can see that and see them also for being human and being messy and like, screwing up, you know, I think that's a healthier way of kind of relating, but it's tough. It's tough to do. Yeah. It, it seems that we have more empathy for fallen idols than we have for ourselves when we commit the same transgression. Right. Um, and it's just an interesting dichotomy. That's interesting. How we, how we think. Yeah. yeah. That might be true for you. I, I think that for each of us, it's going to be an individual yeah. um, experience. Do you find it difficult to um, forgive yourself? Easier to forgive other people? Oh, much more so than if they committed the exact same, whatever, whatever they did, it would, it would be a hundred times worse, I think, if I did it than seeing someone else do it. A hundred times worse if you did it, yeah. yeah. Then it looks like there's uh, maybe an entry point for you for some work to do right. around self-love and acceptance and, um, yeah, gentleness, friendliness. Right. Yeah. Just right, right behind you, the woman, please. Yeah, just to build on uh, sort of what he said, I think it kind of relates to this difference between being basically good and being really, really good. And I feel like I'm like, you know, that guy, he's basically good, so he can make mistakes. But I have to be really, really, really good. And yeah. so I can't make the same mistake. And I think it's yeah. kind of related to not being able to count. I think it's the, the pair of insignificance, like not being able to countenance the idea that, no, you know, you're just basically good, too. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I, I wonder if that's also a dynamic that's at play for a lot of people who struggle with fallen idols. Mm, that's really interesting. So the idea that we have to be perfect, but we can accept in other people, <laughs> yeah, their imperfection. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Um, 
It makes me think how important it is to take our seat every day because with those, A, just practicing nobility with yourself sitting mm -hmm. then helps you to, even just the way you care for yourself in a day, like um, the difference between really nurturing yourself and maybe preparing a meal versus like buying fast food because no one's around you and whatever. Like mm -hmm. just kind of that idea of like how we treat ourselves. Um, and then also taking our seat when we have clear boundaries, um, we're able to more so be with ourselves with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think we can be so pained by fallen idols when we have maybe like especially if they're people that we do know closely or or even just close enough. Mm. Um, we've, like, given them part of our, like, part of our worthiness somehow. Mm. Yeah. In a way, by example, is that what you're saying? That, like, we'll, we'll lead by example when we're relating to these people? Or just that, um, that, like... Like if somebody has, if someone is this amazing yoga teacher and we kind of become followers of this teacher or something, yeah. there's some part of me that wonders, are we not giving them the authority to, um, to give us worthiness? Like as a dancer, I think it happens a lot in the dance community. It ha happens a lot in the acting community. Um, and it's really hard when you find out that a, an acting teacher has sexually assaulted former students or, or whatever. I mean, it's happened in both the dance and acting worlds. Um, and I think it's just a mate, like especially dancers, we're so disciplined that it's a very fine line between like, like idolizing teachers um, and, and just like respecting them and learning from them, you know? Right. Seeing it more as a business transaction than like I have to get my worthiness from them. Right. Yeah. And if I yeah. can take my seat, mm -hmm. then I can like come to class and give mm -hmm. and also hopefully receive in return, but also yeah. not like leave that class having my worthiness from whether or not the teacher approves of me. And I kind of think that like, as this has trickled into the Buddhist communities too, I see the same sort of dynamic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and me as a woman too, I, like in relationship with men, it's been so important for me to be able to take my seat on my own, like to take my seat so that I could be with myself with someone else. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if this is the right analogy, but the, the analogy of the teacup when you go to get a teaching, I think really seems to apply to this, that uh, the idea is that when you, you need to present yourself in a way to be able to receive what someone's offering, which includes if you're a teacup, not being chipped, like not being upside down, like you actually have to be placed in a way mm. that's, that's upright and whole and ready. Yeah. And I think that yeah, that's a really... Oh, I love that. Yeah. I've never heard it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like the, real, the first part about what you said as well, that like the way we act in private should be the way we act in public. Yeah. That, like we don't... You know, I talked to a yoga teacher once who uh, taught in a small community 
and she talked about how she could only smoke cigarettes when she was out of her community because she didn't want anyone to see her smoking. And I was like, well, why not? And she's like, well, wouldn't it just disappoint them? And I was like, I, I think they'd be more disappointed knowing that you're, you're hiding right. Right, part of you. Right. And I think that, you know, that's something I try to live by. It's just like the same in public and private. There's no, no difference. Yeah. Um, and that means taking care of myself and making sure I lead by that example. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to piggyback off of that because, um, yeah, it's funny. I, I think um, regarding yoga teachers or people that are living double lives, that are one side is wellness and the other side is their private life, um, it tends to have a real ripple effect on, um, you know, my skepticism and you know, I've, I've worked in an industry where uh, I've met, <clears throat> you know, a tremendous amount of people that say they work in wellness that have cocaine problems. And yeah. I'm just like, what is, <laughs> how do you do wow. both these things? Right. You know, and it's, and it's just this, like, this fabulousness that they, you know, exude and the, and the way they package themselves. And it's, it's really like, it's like, you know, it, it destroys trust and, and what people's intentions and motives are. Um, you know, and it just is very confusing. But at the same time, I, you know, I can only understand they're just human, right. you know, and they're trying this thing out, and it, maybe it's just like an outfit to them. Right. But it's really confusing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I particularly have a friend who was like, yeah, he's like, I stopped drinking, but... Uh, I met this girl, and she really likes doing cocaine and yoga. And I was like, really? <laughs> I was like, how does that work out? He's like, it's a lot of fun. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to picture this all day. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so then I just run around, like, sort of making, you know, judgments of everyone now. You know, it's just like, you must got some dirty thing up your sleeve, too. You know? like, <laughs> You know, you say you're a Pilates teacher. No, I don't know. Right, right, right. Yeah. But, you know, it, lives, it leaves an imprint. Yeah, no, that's absolutely And so it doesn't help, you know, my, my already, like, you know, cynical nature. Sure. Yeah. Just bring that up. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a lot that one could be cynical of in our current age. And... I mean, I'm, I'm hesitating because I'm in a Buddhist community saying this, but like, I feel like the idea of lineage helps me start to let go of some of my, some of my cynicism. Like if there is a lineage that um, people have been kind of doing practices to cultivate a relationship to their world for thousands of years and have some kind of um, results that come out of that. So like in Buddhism, we have the Hinayana, which is like really clarifying our relationships with substances, with people, with, with um, the way we are in the world. And it's really like having very clear relationships about how we are. And so that for me is, um, lets me let go of a little of my cynicism in this space because I at least know there's a framework for relating with things. And I'm sure there are in like yoga lineages as well. I don't know if Pilates is a lineage um, <laughs> practice or not, but... Beware. Yeah, <laughs> looking for the depth rather than the superficiality of mm -hmm. something. 
Like, I don't know that the juicing community maybe is a lineage, you know. I, maybe it is, I'm not sure. But I think that for me, um, yeah, looking for that depth is helpful. It doesn't solve the problem. You still have to have your own critical awareness and judgment, but um, it helps me knowing that there is some depth there. I hadn't thought about cynicism in this context, but when you were talking about cynicism, I mean, it seems like another natural pair to me, mm. idolatry and cynicism. I mean, they're both absolutes, right? Like somebody, mm -hmm. I idolize someone, so they're all good, and I, I just want to see the surface thing about them. Yeah. But cynicism's the same thing in, on the other end of the scale, right? Yeah. It's just a belief that nothing can really be true. or I mean, So they're... They're like another pair of opposites or something. That's so good. The tin worldly wins. <laughs> and and that, was, that was my response after one of these more recent fallen idols was like, I knew it, you can't trust anyone. <laughs> no one, there's no, there's, you can't trust anyone. And I think that again comes from my punk rock phase in my 20s, but like it's like that, that cynicism absolutely is like, everything is shit. Like, nothing in this world is good, which is an absolute, it's, um, you know, in Buddhism you have the pairing of eternalism and nihilism. And I think that, that maybe we're talking about two forms of that. that. Like, this person is good, and they're always good, and they're always trustworthy, um, or I can't trust anything. So that's wonderful. Thank you. So I actually had no idea what the discussion of the talk was when I came here, um, and it seems really fitting. Uh, so I used to be a high school teacher, so I was in Morocco for two and a half years, and um, I had a very close relationship to my teenage students, and unfortunately I had a mental health meltdown that had to do with like a lot of um, trauma kind of coming back up to the surface. And unfortunately, my students were really at the front lines of that. Um, and I was talking to a colleague of mine yesterday over text saying, you know, the kids are asking about you. They really want to know how you're doing and so on and so forth. Um, I've been instructed by the school not to speak to them, but I think at the end of the year, I'm going to write them a letter just explaining everything and sort of hearing what you guys are saying about cynicism and idolatry is, you know, I know that for, and I had a student text me because she was very upset when she found out I was in the hospital. She wanted to come and see me. Um, and I don't really feel like a fallen idol. I feel like a human being that just had a lot of shit that she needs to take care of, but I also understand that for my students, especially for my female students in a really patriarchal society, to see a woman kind of display weakness for them, I think kind of would, would, would create that sort of circumstance. And so as I'm trying to think through what I'm going to tell these students, the thing that I hope to illustrate that I hope that they can, you know, be open teacups and receive is this idea that it's not, you know, like I don't, I don't want them to idolize me. I've never wanted them to idolize me. Um, but as the other person, I don't really, you know, it's like you want to, you want to, it sucks that they had to see me go through so much pain. Mm -hmm. But if I can at least show them that I'm taking it in stride and using it as an awakening and I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not treating this as like, oh, I'm such a loser or something like that. I hope it opens it up to them and it's just, it's, I just wanted to say that I'm really grateful for your comments because it's helping me really think about how it is that I'm going to present this sort of whole debacle to my students. Well, thank you for being brave and, and talking about this in the room. <laughs>
and for being brave enough to, to write your students. I think that's um, really worth celebrating. It's a really hard thing to do. Um, and yeah, if it's coming from an honest place of like self-forgiveness, like it's absolutely a way to teach, um, teach something, even though you're not their teacher anymore. Yeah. So good luck. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I've never heard this publicly addressed in Shambhala, so I'm like half nervous to ask it. Yeah. Um, but I've always been curious about how Shambhalians, especially teachers, sort of square the life of Choging Trumpa and what he went through, whether with alcoholism or how people might have seen their guru go from being a role model to maybe there was a fall at one point or another. Mm -hmm. um, maybe how the teacher becomes a role model again, how like you kind of reconstruct yourself. Um, and what the community thinks of that as Buddhists and as you know, followers of his teachings? Yeah, that's a great question. And it is something I've heard addressed um, and is kind of, for me, something that's always like floating and then it'll pop up and then it'll float and then it'll pop up. But I joined the community long after he had died. So I, I can't speak from personal experience what being a student of Trunker Rinpoche he's the gentleman on the right, um, was like. And so the best I have are stories of people that were there um, and just asking questions of people that were there. But uh, he was, like, to put it mildly, an unconventional teacher. And, like, that's the most mild. Uh, some people would go much further than that. But he, it was clear that he drank um, regularly. He drank while teaching. He had was not a monastic and disrobed, um, but had sexual relationships with female students um, publicly, and actually was, I think, partnered with multiple students. Um, and, and there's more, but there's just like a lot to kind of work with. And so for me, it's like, um, if he were teaching in 2018, I don't think I would join this community but he's not. The Sakyong, his son, Mipam Rinpoche, uh, who is uh, very conventional. He's married and has three daughters and is a runner and like writes poetry and is just like a really lovely, gentle man. And so for me, it's, um, it's never a question I've had to answer in real time. And it's never felt like, am I supporting someone who's acting in a way that is in, not in accordance with my beliefs because it's never been a question of support. Um, so I, I read the books and I listen to the wisdom and, um, and, and live in this uncomfortable question of like not actually knowing the, all of the details because I wasn't there. And so more stories come out, more stories are told, I keep asking questions. Um, people in this community who were students of his are all willing to talk. I've never asked, what was it really like? And had someone say, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk with you. So any of the um, men or women here who have gray hair um, would be great resources and keep asking the question, you know? It's, in this community, it's up to all of us to kind of like sit with the discomfort and see where it leads us. Is that helpful?
Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. May I suggest that the answer to several of the issues raised this evening, uh, both from an idol's point of view and an idolater's point of view, is that it's okay to be basically good? Uh, you, you referred earlier in your talk to the, to the social expectations that we have, whether we're men or whatever, whatever, and we're supposed to be passionate about what we do, we're supposed to be the best, we're supposed to be competitive. And we, we, we inherit an unrealistic uh, personal worldview. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's impossible for anyone to be perfect. Right. And when we sense imperfection, either in ourselves or in those who we think should be per uh, perfect, we're bound to be disappointed. And if we start with the premise that it's okay to be basically good, um, both of the, of the, of the issues um, become manageable and digestible. Mm. And, and the other point that I'd like to make that, uh, that you raised about the, the Buddhist community and the Buddhist teachings, mm. I don't, uh, it's not appropriate to enter politics, but if anything, if 50% if, if of what we're reading mm. about what's happening and what has happened in Myanmar, mm. a, a nominally Buddhist nation right. that's pervaded by Buddhist beliefs is true, uh, that, that has shaken, um, uh, really shaken my, my affection uh, for, for, for institutionalized Buddhism. Mm. Thank you for both of those. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can start by acknowledging that we're basically good and we don't have to be afraid of who and what we are. And I think that's a, a, a really important starting point. And... And yeah, I mean, I, I studied world's religions in, for my undergraduate degree, and there was a quiz at the beginning of the class on Buddhism. I was like, do you believe that Buddhism is a religion of peace and um, equanimity and like there's no, never violence committed in its name? And they disabused us of that notion very quickly. Um, in systems of domination, anything can be used to dominate someone else. And, and in Buddhist cultures, it can be Buddhism. So we, we, we don't get an easy answer here. You know, the truth is something we each have to come to ourselves. And uh, Buddhism might be a way that points us in that direction, but there's no pill that we can swallow and, and wake up and be fixed. Or, yeah. Hi. Hi. Yes, talking about the, this idea of the idolizing you know, and uh, Sometimes it's like a lot of intellectual, you know, like process of, uh, it's not really based on experience sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, um, like what, what she mentioned about Chogyan Trungpa Rinpoche, and you know, you think about it, maybe, uh, maybe he was doing things that are not right or whatever, mm -hmm. but then you experience the actual teachings and then you feel them and you leave them. And then I think that's the only way to test, you know, if the, what you're doing feels right, or, or you are deceiving yourself in a way. Like, yeah. um, what I mean is that sometimes, like um, blind faith, or because you need to hold to something, maybe uh, yeah, you don't need to do that. Just mm -hmm. to have some experience right now, and then there will be another experience, and then another, <laughs> and then yeah. you, you. I mean, you don't have to stick. You, to stick with the brand, like, 
in, right. in a superficial sense of, right. the, of that. Right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if something doesn't feel right to you, yeah. you're, you're free to move on and do what's right for you. And I think you're right, coming back to our embodied experience, like that's why I started the meditation tonight with checking in with the body, um, checking in with our emotional state. So I think training and resensitizing to what we're actually feeling um, is really key into, know, into kind of seeing the nature of like what's actually happening in this moment, rather than being stuck in this logical trap of like, thinking over something over and over and over again and never quite getting to a conclusion. Um, and so then we can start to learn what feels right, what feels um, liberating versus what feels constricting and uh, holding me down, holding me back, tying me up. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Hi, um, this was, I think, addressed a little bit, but what came up for me as you were talking was, um, somehow being able to think, okay, yeah, well, no, I can forgive, um, I can forgive people who I don't know, who um, have done things I think are wrong, but it's very hard for me to forgive myself, and what triggered that, I mean, sort of what came up after that was um, uh, that I struggle with perfectionism, both mm -hmm. in myself and expect um, perfection, my, the, my sort of um, idea of perfection from other people. Right. And so sort of following that path, I'm thinking about how so much of this is about managing expectation or mm. the expectation of managing expectation. Mm. Um, and so I wonder, um, I wonder sort of what your perspective on that is, knowing that we do come to the, the cushion mm. and we sort of sit with all of the things that come up, um, you know, what to do when, when there's a lot of um, feelings around uh, expectation. Yeah. You know, there's a Lojong slogan that's popping to mind that says, um, Lojong is a series of uh, slogans from the Mahayana school that, um, and one of them is abandon all hope of fruition, which I think has a lot to do with expectations. I think that any time I've tried to predict the future and said, this is how I want this thing to go, this is how I want this thing to, it's never like that. Or, or maybe it's approximately like that, but then there are all sorts of things that are surprises along the way that I could never have seen coming. And so I find that um, cultivating, entering into a state of like, comfortable with uncertainty as Pima Chodron puts it, like developing the ability to sit with not knowing and not trying to like fill my mind with um, expectation about how things should be. Um, that's really been useful, I think. And that comes from <clears throat> sitting and working with the breath. Like it's such a simple practice, but it has profound ways that it can impact us. Because when we learn to relate to our thoughts by letting them go and come back to the breath, we can see when expectations come up and say, oh, thinking, thinking about expectations. Like, are these realistic or are they unrealistic? And if they're unrealistic, we can let them go and, and just return to feeling whatever it is that we're feeling. Um, yeah, is that useful? Yeah, 
Yeah, that's really useful. Thank you. And okay. sort of as I, if I extrapolate up from that, sort of thinking about people, politicians, or whoever else, yeah. um, that where I feel there's an expectation that hasn't been met um, for me specifically, mostly politicians, or for yeah. in some cases family members. You know, mm. um, uh, I can sort of just sit with those feelings, basically. <laughs> like I don't have to solve any of it, right? Necessarily, right? Yeah, we're, we're practicing taking radical responsibility for ourselves and starting there. And, and it doesn't mean we don't have like standards for behavior for other people or we don't set boundaries for other people, but it's always about like um, coming back to what are we feeling and, f and really feeling what we're feeling and, um, and relating it from our own experience and then knowing like what we can change and what we can't from that place. Um, so yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. So maybe it's a little bit cooler in the lobby, and even if it's not, there's definitely chips and salsa and fruit and veg and other good stuff. So uh, thank you all so much for braving the weather and coming out tonight. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Kevin. Visit our website, ny.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Uh, email us at podcast at shambhalanyc.org. Your questions, comments, suggestions. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, come to our weekly Dharma gathering. It's every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. You can hear these talks live and in person and meet your fellow travelers on the Meditation Express. The Meditation, sometimes it feels like an express, sometimes it feels like uh, the opposite of the express, but uh, on the journey of meditation. Thanks for listening. Later. <laughs>